When Jesus commended his spirit into his father's hands uh, as he breathed his last, was he entrusting a, his, his immaterial human soul uh, to his father, which would go immediately into his presence and remain there until he was uh, to be resurrected? That's the question that we look at in this episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. If you are watching this live and if it would be, uh, it would it'd help me a lot if you could give me like a thumbs up or something in the chat to let me know that uh, the sound and um, video is coming through good. Oh, thank you, Argoski. I appreciate that. Um, just by way of reminder, The Apologetics is part of the Trinity Trinity Commission. Uh, the Trinity Commission is a network of podcasts and YouTube series uh, that are all in some way, shape, or form related to Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Um, you can find more about the Trinity Commission by just searching for the Trinity Commission on Facebook, and you'll find that the other shows in that commission include um, Trinity Radio, hosted by the President and Vice President for academics of Trinity, Braxton Hunter, and Jonathan Pritchett. Uh, there's also The Narrow Path by adjunct professor Steve Gregg. Um, there's also Soteriology 101 by uh, Professor Leighton Flowers and others. So I'd encourage you to check those out, and in the case of The Apologetics, the way in which this show is uh, related to Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary is in that I am an adjunct professor as well. As well. So if you'd like to learn from me, Leighton Flowers, Steve Gregg, Braxton Hunter, Jonathan Pritchett, or any of the myriad other awesome faculty at Trinity, go to trinitysem.edu. S-E-M is short for seminary, so trinitysem.edu, um, and there you can learn how you can get a formal higher Christian education, both at the undergrad and grad levels, so both bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, and for that matter, PhDs. Um, uh, at a at an affordable cost uh, and in a um, and fully remote and um, uh, in, in in a flexible kind of scheduling that will, that you can complete even if you're a working um, family man as I am. So I hope that you'll check that out and I hope you'll check the other members of the Trinity Commission out. Um, if you would do me a favor, and after this episode is over, if you enjoyed it, please do like that uh, thumbs up button. Click that thumbs up button to like this video. Subscribe to this channel and click that notifications bell. I hate saying those things, but the reality is all of those actions, liking, subscribing, and getting notifications, they all help uh, the channel you're watching to get more exposure throughout uh, the interwebs. And so um, I would appreciate your support in that way. Um, Few, a few uh, announcement type things to get out of the way before we jump into today's topic. First of all, um, if you watched the episode on uh, Sola Scriptura that I did a number of weeks ago, you'll know that I had a debate on the topic with a Roman Catholic scheduled uh, for a few weeks, a couple months after that episode of this show. Um, I participated in that debate last 
Thursday, and although I wasn't as prepared as I would have would like to have been, um, I think it went fairly well. I think the doctrine of sola scriptura stood up to the scrutiny of my esteemed Roman Catholic opponent. Um, uh, I received a lot of positive feedback, despite my fear that my um, inexperience in the topic would make my presentation pretty crappy. Thankfully, it evidently was not so crappy. Um, Nevertheless, it is still a field, a topic in which I am, uh, I still don't have much experience. Uh, and so, Lord willing, I will continue to engage in uh, the topic. <laughs> yes, I did say interwebs. Uh, thank you, Argotha. I appreciate that. Um, I, I do intend to engage in Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic debates uh, more moving forward uh, and hope to be able to achieve the same level of skill or even exceed one day, Lord willing, uh, the, the kinds of people you might have in mind as prominent uh, debaters of Roman Catholics. Um, so check that out. Just do a search on YouTube for The Gospel Truth, and you'll find the channel hosted by Marlon Wilson, uh, on which I in had the debate, and, um, and watch it, and let me know what you think. But go easy on me. It was my first debate on the topic. Uh, the other thing I'll just mention is that the next time that this show airs, two weeks from today, I will have just returned to my neck of the woods, Seattle, from South Carolina, where I will have participated in a um, live and in-person formal moderated debate, not on uh, any of the topics that I've covered on this show yet, but on the topic of hell. Um, if you are anywhere near a town in South Carolina called Landrum, L-A-N-D-R-U-M, there's a church there called The Well, and I will be participating in a two versus two live and in-person formal moderated debate uh, on the topic of hell. Um, I will be joined by friend and fellow contributor over at Rethinking Hell, Mark Corbett, who is a pastor. Um, we are going to be defending the doctrine of conditional immortality or annihilationism in that debate. And our opponents, Keith Sherlin and Brandon Poor. Uh, Keith Sherlin is a, a graduate of Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, where I'm an adjunct professor, and Brandon Poor is a, I, I, I say poor because it's P-O-O-R-E, but it very well could be pronounced poor. I'll ask his forgiveness if I've been pronouncing it wrongly. But anyway, um, Brandon is a, a pastor, so uh, we'll, this debate will, and they'll be representing the doctrine of uh, eternal torment, uh, eternal conscious punishment, whatever you'd like, the traditional view, infernalism, whatever whatever term you prefer. Um so this is going to be a really fascinating debate, I think, a really good debate, because firstly, the, the four of us enjoy each other's company. We consider each other brothers, and we have uh, the utmost of respect for one another. Um, but also, it's going to be an interesting dynamic with, you know, when, when it's a two-on-two -two kind of debate, in particular because in both on both sides, you've got sort of an academic. On my side, that's me, and on our opponent's side, that's Keith Sherlin, Dr. Keith Sherlin. Uh, not not medical doctor, but uh, either a doctor of jurisprudence, uh, I think is what the word is, for, if he's a uh, judge or a lawyer or something like that, or it's a doctor of philosophy, a um, uh, you know a PhD. Uh, so so Dr. Keith Sherlin and I are the academic um, side of each of our pairs. Um, 
Which is not to say that the other person on each side is not academic, but they're more pastoral. So Mark Corbett is a pastor, and so is Brandon Poor. So you're going to get, I think, an interesting dynamic, two-on-two, both academic and more accessible-slash-pastoral-type perspectives. Uh, I think it's going to be great. Um, I think there's a possibility that somebody that is a bit of a a hero of mine is going to be there. Uh, Something of a hero, despite the fact that he probably thinks very poorly of me, or at the very least of the topic I'm representing there. Um, the person I'm talking about is Dr. Kenneth Gentry. Um, he has been instrumental in my having embraced and continuing to believe in so-called partial preterism. Um, and I think he's going to be there. At one point, we were talking about possibly having him moderate, uh, but I don't think it ended up being him that will moderate. But he very well may be there in person. I don't know. So um, that might be a little bit of a uh, incentive for you to attend in person if you can as well, if you'd like to meet Kenneth Gentry. Um, but don't hold me to that because I don't know for certain that he will be there. It's just something I'm hoping uh, I was told might happen, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. So again, um, this is in Landrum, South Carolina at The Well. And uh, the debate is going to be on Saturday, March 20th. So uh, just under two weeks from right now. Saturday, March 20th. I think it's at 5.30 p.m. or 6 p.m. Landrum time. And uh, if you want to... Um, find out more details about it. Uh, maybe I'll include a link in the description. Actually, you know what? I'll just put a link in the um, in the show or in the YouTube chat right now in case you would like to uh, learn more about it. I'm putting it in the chat right now. That is a Facebook event that it um, uh, that that link will take you to, and it will have all the details that you'll need if you'd like to attend. It's possible it may be live streamed. If it's not, I'm sure it'll be recorded. So if you can't make it to Landrum, South Carolina, Saturday, March 20th, that's okay. You could still watch it afterwards or maybe even live as it's being streamed. Um, But there will be no more episodes of The Apologetics before then. So um, if this is something that is interest that you find interesting and you want to learn more about, you'll have to reach out to me. Email me at the email address on my screen screen right here, theapologetics at hotmail.com, or send me a Facebook message or something like that, and I can give you more details. Um, but I'll leave that and move on to today's topic. So let me um, share. So, so actually, before I jump into the topic today, let me um, set the stage. Hey! Evan Minton, Susan, uh, my moderator in the chat, tells me that Evan Minton plans on going to the debate. That is so awesome. I have interviewed Evan on the Rethinking Hell Live YouTube stream, the one that I do on alternating Mondays between the apologetics. Um, and yes, I do know him, Susan, and I am thrilled to hear that he's going to be there. I can't wait to meet him on per- in person. Shannon says, hey, do I need uh, to... St-? He says, Shannon says, I need to study up on the debate with uh, a non-Calvinist named Kevin. Yeah, that's going to be coming up in May, I think. And so I will, I do plan to study for that, Shannon. But I've got to study for one thing at a time. So... Um, so let me give you the, uh, the, the, the background to why I'm going to cover the topic I am today. I have way overloaded my plate, um, which is not uncommon. If my wife is watching right now, she can testify to the fact in in chat that I have a tendency, a habit to always take on more responsibilities than I can really reasonably handle. Um, 
And the most recent recent things have been preparing for that debate with the Roman Catholic, but also a presentation for the Evangelical Theological Society that I did with a friend of mine a week and a half or so ago. Um, I've got, you know, work, work. I've got stuff with my kids and on and on it goes. And I just have not had time to prepare anything really substantial for today's episode of The Apologetics. And so I was thinking yesterday morning, I think it was yesterday morning, might have been the night before, gosh, what am I going to do in today's episode? It needs to be something that I can cover uh, without too much prep work. (laughs) Star says, uh, yes, my wife is Star, and she says that is an honest truth. By the way, I'm glad Star spoke up because that reminds me, um, I have a friend, Star and I both have a mutual friend. Uh, He was actually the best man at my wedding. His name is Daniel Curry, and he has a YouTube channel that my wife has helped to launch recently um, called The Wolf Ranger. Uh, I would, it would do me, um, I would be greatly uh, honored and I'd be very grateful if you would go find the Wolf Ranger channel. Um, in fact, maybe my wife can put a link to it in the chat as you're watching so you can click on it. Um, go to that channel and subscribe to his channel. We're trying to get him to over a hundred subscribers and he's nearly there because we'd like for him to be able to have a, um, a custom URL. So you can go to like youtube.com slash the Wolf Ranger or something like that. Right now it's a convoluted thing because you can't get a custom URL until you get over 100 subscribers. But I love my friend Dan a lot, and this is his channel is not on anything biblical or theological, at least not explicitly. So if you have had your fill of shows like this one, and you'd like to explore a different topic, um, you might be interested in his channel. He is a professional... Um, Uh, range writer and what he uh, as part of that work what he is very passionate about is helping humans and animals in particular predatory animals to coexist in a a more peaceful way that doesn't um, he cares a lot about you know ranchers who need to protect their herds very often resort to um, hey thank you Susan for putting that in the chat is that is that the right link though it probably is it is. Hey, thanks, Susan. He's up to 79 subscribers. We just need 21 more. Um, but anyway, he he. a lot of ranchers will resort to killing wolves and, uh, you know, um, predator, uh, big cats and things like that to protect their herds. But my friend Daniel is uh, firmly convinced that um, predators don't have to be killed in order to uh, maintain a healthy coexistence between people like ranchers and predators. Thank you, Jamie, for subscribing. That means a lot. And everybody else, if you'd subscribe, it would mean a ton to me. Anyway, the reason why I love his channel so much, and there's so much you're going to get as he continues to build out his channel, you're going to learn a lot about survival skills and animal behaviors and things like that. You're going to get to see animals in the wild that maybe you've never seen before. But what I'm really, what really I love uh, about my friend Dan, Dan's work, his passion, and now his channel is that even though his channel and his work and everything is not explicitly biblical or theological, um, he is doing something that I think is at the core of what it is our of what our purpose is as humanity. If you remember in the first chapter of Genesis, God creates humankind in His image, and uh, theologians have debated for two thousand well for more than two thousand years what it means for humanity to be created in the image of God. But at least on the surface of it, just ostensibly, um, taken at face value. Thank you, Susan, for subscribing. I appreciate it. 
Um, uh, right after he create, he says, "I'm going to create man in His image." He says, "Let them rule." or exercise dominion over uh, all the birds of the air and beasts of the earth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So something about us being bearers of the divine image has to do with our responsibility to act um, uh, faithfully in our role as stewards over God's creation. Um, and if you think, look, I am not an animal rights activist. I'm not an environmentalist. I don't, you know, go to rallies. I'm not a tree hugger or anything like that. And and, and by the way, I don't say that pridefully. I think I could have a much better footprint, as it were, on this planet. I'm not exercising my stewardship very well there. But I think my friend Dan is, even without intentionally doing it to the glory of God. I don't. He. he I think he would identify as um, some kind of Christian, but he's not. Um, he's not super. He's. He's not. I don't think he goes to church on a regular basis or anything like that. And I don't want to give too much away. I mean, uh, Dan, if you're watching this, or even Star, if you're watching right now, I'm not trying to throw Dan under the bus. I'm just saying what's so awesome to me is that without explicitly thinking about his role as a bearer of the divine image, he's nevertheless acting in that role in a way I have seen nobody else do because of his passion for helping humankind and animal kind, particularly predators, to coexist in a way that allows all of God's creation to flourish. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And look, I, I believe that whether or not our pets will be resurrected, I think it's almost indisputable that in the eternal state, in the new heavens and new earth, there will be animal kind. And we as humankind will coexist with animal kind then in perfect harmony. But until then, we have to, I think, work toward approximating that perfect harmony as best we can. Jamie uses the word shalom. That's exactly right. The word shalom in biblical Hebrew, um, a very simple translation is peace, but it's about so much. See, and my, my wife says that Dan even mentions the creator in his next video. That's so awesome. So anyway, I've been rambling, but the point is, um, this is a channel I think you're going to enjoy, and I think that it may inspire you to exercise your um, God-given responsibility of stewardship over creation in a way that you may never have been inspired to before. So please do consider subscribing. Again, it's the Wolf Ranger. Susan put the, the link in the chat. Peter, welcome. I hope you'll go subscribe to his channel as well. Um, but uh, it, like I said, we're trying to get him to go over 100 subscribers, and I really think that this channel is going to take off. So I'd love for you to be a part of it early on. Okay, that's enough of that. We're going to jump into our topic today. It's a topic that I came up with because I needed something I could come up with, I could prepare for with little time and effort, and um, something that I could deliver fairly briefly. I told my wife 45 minutes. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate that. Um, I told my wife it'll be 45 minutes, but I've been blabbing for 15 already, and I haven't, I'm only just now starting the topic, so it might go for another 45 minutes from now. But anyway, um, I wanted to do something fairly brief to get it, you know, so I don't have to put a ton of effort into it and a lot of prep time. <coughs> and so we're going to be talking about, or I'm going to be introducing you to Christian physicalism. Now, if that's a phrase you haven't heard before, if you are not sure what I mean by Christian physicalism... <coughs> <clears throat> excuse me, then this episode of The Apologetics is for you. 
If you are familiar with that term and you're familiar with the debate that we're going to, that I'm introducing the my, my viewers to, well, you still might want to stick around because you might. I'm going to cover one particular kind, uh, one particular text or pair of texts um, that I think is like the lowest hanging fruit uh, in terms of demonstrating that it does not require a dualist reading. And so we're going to be looking at that, and that might be something you're interested in, even if you do know the terrain of the debate. So in, to, to meet those qualifications, something I didn't have to prepare much for and something that I could present fairly quickly and then get off the show, I thought that an introduction to Christian physicalism would be something um, worthwhile and, and easy to whip together. Um, time will tell. Okay, so when we talk about Christian physicalism, we're talking about the theological category of anthropology. So within the world of uh, systematic theology, there's a lot of categories within there. There's theology proper, which is the doctrine of God. There's anth well anthropology, which we'll look at in a second. There's pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. There's um, protology, the study of creation. There's eschatology, the study of last things. Um, and on and on it goes. Well, one area or category within systematic theology is the topic of anthropology. Anthropology comes from the Greek word anthropos, uh, which means human. It doesn't mean man in, in the gendered sense or in the sexed sense. It means human. And uh, Alan Cairns in Dictionary of Theological Terms defines anthropology this way, the science or study of man. And it includes the creation of man, his original state, his probation, etc., etc. Um, we're going to focus on specifically the constitution of man, what a person, what a human being is made up of. All right. Now, in terms, so that's theology, but this also corresponds to an area within philosophy, the, namely the philosophy of mind. The philosophy of mind. Thank you, Brian, for subscribing to that channel. I think you'll enjoy it. I don't think you'll regret it. And once he gets past 100 subscribers and we've gotten that, that URL, you can unsub if you want, but you really shouldn't because it's going to be awesome. Um, Philosophy of mind is described this way by Britannica. Reflection on the nature of mental phenomena and especially on the relationship of the mind to the body and to the rest of the physical world. So this is the topic I'm going to speak to briefly today. The topic of anthropology and its philosophical correlate, the philosophy, or at least one of its philosophical correlates, philosophy of mind. Specifically, we're going to look at, <laughs> my wife says, don't tell people, you're right, don't ever unsubscribe to Dan's channel. Don't ever unsubscribe to the Wolf Ranger. I'm just saying that if after some time you find that it wasn't all that worth your time, by that point, he'll be beyond 100 subscribers, and so we'll forgive you if you unsubscribe. Hopefully, that's a better way of putting it. So we're going to look, we're going to touch ever so briefly, just in a very introductory way, on the debate between monism and dualism. Now, just to be clear, I'm not talking here about metaphysical monism or dualism. And what I mean is, I'm not talking about um, ontological or, uh, like I said, metaphysical. I'm not talking about whether good and evil will coexist throughout eternity, which would be a kind of dualism. I'm not talking about whether all there is is matter in motion, which would be a form of, uh, of uh, metaphysical monism. I'm specifically talking about the debate between anthropological monism versus dualism. Now, the word monism, uh, or both monism and dualism, are attempts to answer uh, this question of how many kinds of substances are human beings composed? 
Notice it's not how many substances compose a human being, but rather how many kinds of substances compose a human being. Monism, as the name suggests, is the view that a human being is composed of one kind of substance. Whereas dualism is the view that human beings are composed of two kinds of substances. Okay. Now, when I talk about substance, I'm not talking about substance in the way that that with the meaning that that word typically has in day-to-day -day use, right? Like uh, there's a, there's a substance I'm holding on to in this Diet Coke bottle, um, and there's substance inside of it, namely the, the the fluid that is the soda and so on and so forth. I'm not talking about stuff in that kind of sense of the word. I'm using substance in with its philosophical meaning, which is really vague and nebulous and, and is not at all like, uh, there's no nailed down, definitely agreed upon kind of definition. But here are a couple of attempts to define what a substance is in philosophical jargon. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says that substances are those things that are the foundational or fundamental entities of reality. And Britannica, putting it a little bit more simply, says they are the basic things, the basic stuff out of which the world is composed. And just to be clear, when it uses the world here, or at least when I'm using the world here, I don't mean the earth. I mean everything that exists, all right? All reality. Substances are the things at the, at the foundational level that comprise reality. Uh, Jamie, you're asking a question, you ask a question in the chat that I'm about to answer, okay, in just a minute. Now, Remember, I said that the debate between monism and dualism, anthropologically speaking, is the debate between how or is it, are they are competing answers to the question how many kinds of substances compose a human being. Um, so let me talk about what I think are the mutually um, exhaustive. Right? There, there are two kinds of substances, uh, at least in the categorization that matters to us here. One is material substances, and these are substances that, as the name implies, are composed of matter. So in the case of anthropological uh, monism or dualism, material substances, the material substance of which a human is composed is his or her body. Now, there are properties of that matter that are relevant as well, and this will come up a little bit later, <clears throat> why it's important. Um, energy, I would say, uh, is not a substance in and of itself. It is a, what I think physics, physicists would agree is in some sense of the word, a property of matter. And the same is true of the arrangement of matter, right? These are ways in which matter acts or the forces that it exerts. And in the case of arrangement, it's the way the matter is laid out in three-dimensional space. You'll, you'll see why these are relevant in a moment. But the point is, is that um, in terms of material substances with a human being, we're talking about the body and everything that makes up the body, right? The brain, your limbs, et cetera, et cetera. So for example, um, Take the refrigerator magnets that you might be familiar with uh, seeing on refrigerators, especially the refrigerators of households with young children. You can see here a picture of a refrigerator with ma such, a, such magnets on it, and there's a peculiar phrase there uh, where the magnets spell out the phrase, punch me in the face. <laughs> I found this on Google. I thought it was funny. But the reason I want to give this illustration is to show that 
when we're talking about the the matter of which such magnets are composed, we're talking about all of the individual atoms that make it up. So an individual substance in this case might be the the uh, the the magnet P, right? The letter P that is a refrigerator magnet, um, and it's that's a substance, and. Um, the matter of which it is composed are the individual atoms that are linked together via bonds um, to form the material, you know, stuff of which the P is made. But it's also, it also exerts energy, right? Because it has a magnetic field. Now, if you picture a, di a diagram you might remember from high school or something where it shows the magnetic field around the Earth or around a magnet, you'll know that um, the, the, the magnetic field of a magnet extends beyond the boundary of the matter that composes the magnet. But there's no stuff in that field. It's not a concrete entity of itself. The, the field of a, a magnetic field is a reference to the force that that magnet exerts on um, the right kinds of magnetic, you know, other other kinds of objects. So the so the magnetic field is not a substance uh, in and of itself. The magnet, uh, whether material material or otherwise, it's a property of some sort of the magnet itself. In this case, the the forces that it's exerting. Um, now, I am not a physicist or a philosopher, so if I'm uh, mischaracterizing anything, I apologize and just take what I say with a grain of salt. I'm just trying to say that there's a distinction between the magnet and its magnetic field, but only the magnet is, is a substance, using the philosophical jargon. And then also the arrangement matters, right? Because here we've got another concept, which is information. You might have heard people say lately that um, scientists recognize there being not just two fundamental... Um, uh, realities in the cosmos, matter and energy, but three, especially ID, uh, intelligent design advocates say that there's a third kind of fundamental aspect to, re to the cosmos, which is a information. Um, uh, information, to use the definition that we ID uh, proponents affirm, is specified complexity. And the idea here is, given um, any complex arrangement of matter, there will be uh, any uh, hundreds, thousands, even millions or billions of possible arrangements of those matter, uh, of, the, of, those, of those atoms. And any one of them, therefore, will be extremely unlikely, right? Um, one out of hundreds, thousands, or even millions or more. Um, but that's the complexity part. The specificity part is that if you have uh, a, a, a body of atoms that could be arranged in millions of different ways and only one of them corresponds to a recognizable pattern that's specifying right it's specific it's not merely an, a, an unlikely complex arrangement of atoms it's also an arrangement of atoms that communicates something and in the case of these magnets on the screen the magnets P-U-N-C-H, etc., spell out a recognizable phrase, punch me in the face. So we can see that with this one substance that is a magnet, you can have both the matter, that, or you can, you can have its matter, its substance, but then it can have additional properties like energy and arrangement that are significant, but subsist in the matter itself. That's right, Susan. This is one of the reasons why I believe in intelligent design is because given the myriad, millions of possible arrangements of um, 
say the amino acids that com- that comprise a, a protein, um, yeah, that comprise a protein, very tiny fraction of them will actually successfully form into a protein that can then be used to build a, a, a living creature. Um, so that's why I think DNA is information, right? But anyway. So anyway, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about material substances. Matter that also has properties that are relevant. But there's also immaterial substances. And these are substances that exist beyond the material world. Now the obvious one, because we're Christian uh, philosophers in, in the case of this show, is spirit. And here I'm talking about like when Jesus says God is spirit in John 4.24. We could also include angelic beings. Right? Um, and we'll get to whether or not humans have something that falls under this category. But the point is, this is a very, this is the first one that I think comes to most of our minds when we think about immaterial substances, but arguably there are others. Heaven. And by heaven, I don't mean the sky. I don't mean what's up there, right? I mean the realm in which God exists naturally, right? Uh, that arguably is a substance because it's not three-dimensional space in the sense that we're familiar with in in you know existing within the material world but it is nevertheless where god dwells and arguably where immaterial angels naturally exist so there may be some sense in which heaven could be called a substance as well an immaterial substance but then also there's abstract concepts or ideas the number eight you know, or uh, the ideas in Platonic idealism, or is it Aristotelian idealism? Anyway, um, abstract things that don't exist in reality, they're not concrete objects that exist in reality, but they're abstract concepts, those are immaterial as well. So those are just some examples of immaterial substances. So this is what we're talking about when we're looking at the debate between anthropological monism and dualism, is we're talking about how many kinds of substances material and immaterial, is a human composed of. Now, the most, by far, most popular Christian answer to this question is dualism. Right? So if this circle on the screen represents everything that makes up a human being, and if red stuff is material and blue stuff is immaterial, the answer the, the dualist answer to the question how many kinds of substances make up a human being is two there's the material kind of substances of which a human is made and there's the immaterial kind of substances of which a human being is made the uh, dichotomy version of dualism says that there are only two substances notice the distinction dualism says there are two kinds of substances. Dichotomy, the dichotomism, is the view that there are, in fact, two substances, one per each kind. So there's a material substance called the body and an immaterial substance called the soul or sometimes called the spirit. Right? And I would say that's probably the dominant, at least today, uh, I, I think throughout Christian history, the dominant form of dualism is some sort of dichotomy. And in future episodes of The Apologetics, we'll go more deeply into each of these categories and stuff like this. I'm trying to keep things at a very surface level for the purpose of an introduction. But there's also the trichotomy view, the trichotomist view. 
This is still a form of dualism because there's still two kinds of substances, material substances and immaterial substances that make up a human being. The difference, though, between dichotomism and trichotomism is that whereas dichotomism says there is only one of each kind, so a total of two substances, trichotomy says there are a total of three substances that compose a human being. One of them is material, namely the body, and then two of them are immaterial, an immaterial soul and an immaterial spirit. Now, I'll be honest, I don't have a lot of respect for this view. I do have a lot of respect for people who hold it because their brothers and sisters created the image of God. But the point is, I, I, I don't think this has any support in scripture. Although a very, 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 very surface level reading of a handful of texts might lend itself uh, to this view, I don't think it really has much going for it. But nevertheless, the point here is just to say that whether you're a dichotomist who believes that human beings have a body and a soul, or whether you're a trichotomist who thinks that human beings have a body, a soul, and a spirit, either way, you are a dualist, because you think that there are two kinds of substances that compose a human being, some of them material, others of them immaterial. Now, as for monism, again, this is a way, the answer to the question, how many kinds of substances are human beings composed of, um, the, the monist answer to that question is one kind. But you shouldn't assume that that therefore means material, that, 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 that the kind of substance, the lone kind of substance of which humans are made is material, because there's idealism. Idealism is the view that um, all reality, in fact, is strictly speaking, mind, or maybe spirit or soul or something like that. But um, I just heard from a, uh, an idealist within the past couple of weeks who said that the idea in idealism is that um, when you think you're seeing or hearing or feeling an object in three-dimensional space, that's not real. It's something like an illusion. What um, what is actually going on is that you are experiencing the mental experience of seeing, hearing, or feeling some sort of three-dimensional object in space. So a rough, imperfect analogy would be like the Matrix. If you've never seen the Matrix, the, the idea of the Matrix is that um, uh, 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 artificial intelligence has taken over humankind, and what they have done is they have plugged human beings brains into a computer uh, you know a, a computer generated world and um, these people are plugged into the matrix and if they don't know it that they are plugged into the matrix they just think they're living in a normal world like this but what's really happening is that the matrix is um, causing the neurons in their brains to fire in such a way as to simulate the experience of being in the three-dimensional world well that's kind of like idealism there is no, you know, fat cheek on my on the side of my face, but when I, but I, but I experience uh, the mental experience of interacting with the side of my face or or whatever. Um, now I don't have a lot of, I don't hold this view in very high esteem, but the point of it is just to say that um, uh, this is a form of monism, but not the one that most Christians would think of when they hear the term monism. Because the only kind of substance that makes up a human being in monism, in idealist monism, is immaterial. It, namely, it's mind or soul or spirit. Um, 
Jamie asks, uh, a professor of theology that he knows is saying dualism is derived from a surface level reading of popular texts. Um, who would have thought? Yeah, that's that's my view. But I don't want to get into that here in, well, I will get into that just a little bit toward the end of um, the show today. Um, thank you, Jesus says, how does idealism explain the exponential growth of minds? I, I don't know. I'm not an idealist and I, I'm not very familiar with it, so I can't answer that question. But in some future episode of the show, I will dedicate my time to the topic of idealism. Um, again, this is just sort of trying to introduce you to the terrain of the debate. Um, but I'm not, I, I am a monist, but I'm not an idealist. And as you, that, as you might be able to guess, what that means is that I think human beings are composed of one kind of substance, but because I'm not an idealist, I don't think that substance is immaterial. Instead, I think that kind of substance is material. <clears throat> and this is physicalism, anthropological physicalism. So a physicalist like me, an anthropological physicalist like me, thinks that there's one kind of substance that makes up a human being, and that kind of substance is material. Specifically, the substance is a body. Okay, So what I am made up of, in my view, is a body. Period. But naturally, that raises the question, what about the mind? Right? Because... Um, it seems, at least on the surface, that my mind is distinguishable from my body. My thoughts are not identical to my body, or so it seems. And I do think it only seems that way. Or sorry, no, I mean, I don't think it only seems that way. But there are some physicalists who would say it does only seem that way. They would be reductive physicalists. Reductive physicalists think that mental states or mind states are reducible to or are identical to brain states. And this is a very popular view within atheism, atheistic naturalism or naturalistic atheism, however you might want to put it. And this is why so many atheist philosophers are hard determinists. They are not, they are materialist determinists. What that means is the every single mental state we have is a result the product of, the effect of, a chain of cause and event that stretches back to the Big Bang. And it's just like dominoes falling. If you had enough, uh, if you could, if you had the mental power or the computative power, you could look at the initial state of the universe at the Big Bang and then predict what is going to happen with perfect, with perf with perfect uh, accuracy at every point in the future, including what's happening in our brains. Because again, it's all just a, a series of dominoes. And because in reductive physicalism, the mind is reducible to or identical to the brain, you think you're, ex you are experiencing things, but you aren't making any, any genuine choices. You're not exercising free will of any sort. In a sense, you are just experiencing the firing of your neurons. And when you make when you perform actions and make decisions, all that's happening is the neurons are firing in a in a in a physically predictable way, provided we had all the information necessary to make such predictions. And you're just experiencing them being carried out. And it seems like you're making decisions and taking actions and things when in reality you're just experiencing your brain, your neurons firing. Okay? So that would be a reductive physicalism. Now, Susan, you said that's determinism. No, no, no. It's a specific kind of determinism. 
namely atheistic or naturalistic or materialistic determinism. I am a determinist, but I'm not a reductive physicalist. And I don't think that our choices are the effect, the, the, the um, unchangeable effect of a series of cause and effect you know, steps in a chain switching back to the Big Bang. I am a theistic determinist, meaning I think that God has predetermined everything that will take place in time, but I'm not a materialistic t determinist. So I think that God predetermines the future, but not because we're just, our brains are fire, our neurons are firing and, and we experience the firing of those neurons. And I'm not that. So no, it's not determinism full stop. Uh, it, it's a particular kind of determinism and it's not a kind of determinism that we Calvinists hold. As I said though, I'm not a reductive physicalist. I'm a non-reductive physicalist. And according to non-reductive physicalism, mental states or mind states are not reducible or identical to brain states. Um, I would say that the mind is a property or function or some other aspect of the living brain. So remember I was making a distinction back in the example of the magnets. Um, where the substance in a magnet is the matter of which it is composed. But it's also got a magnetic field and an arrangement of its matter that are relevant and significant and are distinguishable from the matter itself, but aren't part of the, but aren't immaterial substances, right? Well, that's what I think the mind is kind of like. Our substance, the substance of which we are composed, is just the body and all of its parts, including the brain. But the mind, in my view, is not some immaterial substance, or for that matter, it's not a substance at all. It's not a material substance. It is a property or function or activity or, or whatever aspect of the living brain. Um, and so that's why I am not a reductive physicalist. I don't think that the mind simply is the brain. I think the mind has a relationship to the brain, but it's a kind of property or, or, or something like that. Now, I've given an incredibly simplistic overview of the debate between dualism and monism. In the, and it is really simplistic. In, the future, in future episodes, I want to dive into each of these categories a little bit more. Um, because in each of these categories, uh, there are a number of different sort of subviews. All right. Uh, so, for example, within physicalism, you have reductive and non-reductive physicalism. Um, in dualism, you have uh, substance dualism, you have holistic dualism, you have emergent dualism, although as I will probably argue when I get there in a future episode, emergent dualism I think is really just a form of physicalism. Um, you know, at any rate, there's a, there's a constitutional view. I mean, it's, it's, it's a complex debate. We're not going to get into the complexities in this episode. We're going to get into them in future episodes. But that's what I want to introduce is what it means to be a non-reductive or Christian physicalist. It's the view. And by the way, um, an atheist could be a non-reductive physicalist as well, I think. Um, I'm just, I'm a Christian non-reductive physicalist. And that's what I wanted to introduce to you. And what I want to do is tackle a particular set of texts just to sort of introduce how a physicalist might read these texts. Before I do, though, I want to interact with the chat a little bit. Um, uh, Jamie says, 
or wait a minute, hold on. Um, I thought there was a question I wanted. Oh, Jamie says, I think you could do a three-part comparative diagram like the three views of hell with physicalism, idealism, and dualism. Yeah, you might. Um, if you don't know what he's talking about, go to rethinkinghell.com slash triangle, I think, or hell-triangle. Um, we've got a very helpful diagram that... Um, that shows how that shows the similarities and differences between the three Christian views of hell: uh, the traditional view of eternal torment, my view of annihilationism, and then the other view of universalism. Um, and he's saying that maybe there's a way to do that between physicalism, idealism, and dualism. Yeah, maybe. Um, okay. I don't think. Okay, so I'm caught up with the chat. I think. So now what I want to do is I want to turn to. Um, the biblical text and let me be let me be very clear i'm not at all of the opinion that there aren't any difficult texts for physicalists like me to explain or to reconcile i recognize there are some you might be have you might have for example in mind uh the story of lazarus and the rich man on luke 16 or jesus's words to the thief on the cross today you'll be with me in paradise or paul saying i long to be away from the body and at home with the lord or uh saul con consulting the medium at endor and talking to at least ostensibly samuel long after he had died and on and I could go. The, the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, I know a man who was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. Right? I could go on and on. There's a lot of texts that we physicalists have got to explain. Of course, there are texts that the dualist has to explain as well. Um, but what I wanted to do is tackle, as part of this introduction, some very low-hanging fruit. If you're not familiar with the phrase low-hanging fruit, it just means given in the in the context of this presentation um imagine a tree and there's there's fruit that's really high up and it's really hard to reach and then there's fruit that's just right here at, at eye level and it's super easy to grab um the high hanging fruit is the, are the more challenging texts that i will cover in a future episode or episodes when i try to make a case for and a negative case and, and, a, and a defense of physicalism. I'll get into some of the harder, harder texts, the higher hanging fruit. But what I want to do to introduce the topic is to tackle what I what may be the lowest hanging fruit, um, at least in my mind. Because what I want you to do is to, if, if you're a uh, lifelong dualist and, and it baffles you, how in the world could somebody like me, who seems like he's at least somewhat intelligent and something of a competent, you know, exegete, how could somebody like that hold this weird view that human beings don't have a soul? It just seems obvious, right? Just all over the text, right? Um, what I want to do then is to give you just a little taste at how a physicalist like me might come to uh, some texts that on the surface seem like they teach dualism and show you why, at least with this low-hanging fruit we're going to look at in a moment, that's not at all the only possible or even most plausible reading of the text. Uh, before I get to it, though, Juice World Unreleased says, I'm still slightly confused on how non-reductive physicalism solves the problem of deterministic outcomes based on brain states. Great question. I will dive into that in a future episode, but let me just touch on it now. If minds are reducible to brains, or uh, to put it a little more precisely, if mind states or mental states are reducible to brain states, then the um, cause and effect chain is unidirectional. Uh, the chain between or the link between the brain and the mind uh, 
is unidirectional in in reducible uh, reductive physicalism the changes in the brain cause changes to mind and that's it so there is no choice there is no will you are simply what what you perceive to be a choice that you make is really just changes in your brain the neurons in your brain firing causing the effect of a change to your mental state okay so that's why it's a hard determinism a, a materialistic determinism uh, a reductive physicalism would be okay because the because the the link of cause and effect between the brain and the mind is unidirectional non-reductive physicalists like me however think that because the mind is not reducible to the brain because mental and mind states are not reducible to brain states the link of cause and effect between the brain and the mind is bi-directional so yes if you change the brain you will change the mind and by the way this is indisputable it's simply, it's simply indisputable. Um, the, the most famous uh, proof of this, I think, is probably the case of Phineas Gage, or Phineas Cage. I think it's Phineas Gage. He's a, he's a very famous um, case study in the history of philosophy of mind um, and in psychology, because what happened was, this, this is a guy who worked on railroads, and he had a device that would, that would shoot railroad spikes into the piece of wood that the railroad spike, uh, it, it connects the, the, the rail to the piece of wood into the ground, right? So it shoots a spike through those two things and into the ground. But he had a, a misfire, some sort of technical problem, and the rail spike, the rail spike didn't shoot down into the ground. It shot up through his head. Look him up, Phineas Gage. It's pretty interesting stuff. Now, here's the fascinating thing. This caused damage to his brain, and uh, but he did not die, and he really didn't even suffer terribly, you know, terrible effects the rest of his life or anything. Um, but he was a very different person. He 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 he, and though he and those around him described him as virtually an entirely different person, his mannerisms, his his proclivities, and things like that had changed. Um, and this is just one example, the most famous example probably, out of innumerable examples that prove that if you change Phineas P. Gage, thank you, Susan. Gosh, Susan is great. You are awesome, Susan. Um, so we know that changes to the brain affect changes in the mind there's simply that's it's simply indisputable now that doesn't mean that's proof of physicalism but i'm just saying there it is something to consider we non-reductive physicalists however think that the mind that sort of arises or emerges from the functioning of the brain can in turn cause the the brain to change in other words once you have consciousness you can make choices that cause your brain neurons to fire differently. Okay, so Juice World sees my point then. Yeah, so, th so that's the point. In, in reductive physicalism, brains, changes to the brain affect changes in the mind, and that's it. In reductive physicalism, changes in the brain can affect changes in the mind, and changes in the mind can affect changes in the brain. And that's why it escapes the problem of hard, hard determinism. Um, 
or at least we allege, we, 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 we non-reductive physicalists allege that it solves that problem. Now, that is really difficult to fathom, though, because we don't have any sort of analog that, we're, that we can really uh, point to and say, hey, that's a picture of what it looks like for something uh, emerging, a, a, an emergent property that can in turn affect the objects from which it emerges. You know, we don't have, but, but you might think of like a hive mind you know, a real, this is an imperfect analogy, but consider the way a flock of bird flies, a flock of birds. You've got a whole bunch of individual conscious, consciousnesses in, in a flock of birds. And yet, the flock that is the combination of all those individual consciousnesses of birds almost has something of a consciousness of its own that affects the way those minds operate. Because... The flock moves as a whole, you know, and, and as the flock changes direction, the birds follow suit. Imperfect example, um, but yeah, I'm glad that helps you juice. Okay, so what is the low-hanging fruit that I'm talking about? Well, the, it's, it's the title of this episode. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm talking here about um, Luke 23:46. Jesus, uh, I'll go back to verse 44 and just read, okay? It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light faded. So he's, he's uh, it was six, it was the sixth hour, darkness was over the whole land for, until the ninth hour while the sun's light faded, so there's three hours that pass, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now you look at this and you think, how in the world could anybody with an ounce of common sense be a physicalist? Right? Clearly, Jesus is here testifying to the reality that he has an immaterial human spirit. And he's, he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm returning it to God who gave it to me. The Father who gave it to me. It sounds like straightforward dualism. And this isn't the only text, uh, this is one of two texts that I want to look at, well, three, and then and we'll go into uh, some, some detail. But, but there's one other one that's extremely co uh, similar to this one, and that's where Stephen, when he's being martyred in Acts 7, um, he said as he's dying in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Okay, so he wasn't dying yet when he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, but that is what prompted his stoning. They, they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, and here's verse 59 of Acts 7, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Again, you might think if you're a lifelong dualist or, or a dualist of any sort, how could anybody like me, who seems to have at least a little bit of common sense and, and rationality, look at these texts and be like, yeah, we don't have immaterial spirits. Don't both Jesus and Stephen testify to the fact that they do? Well, hold on. Um, the text, this, this into your hands I commit my spirit is a quote um, and I think it's being alluded to by Stephen, but it's being virtually quoted by Jesus, a quote of Psalm 31, 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. 
this is why I said three texts, and then we'll start digging into the details, right? So we've got uh, we've got Luke 23, we've got Acts 7, and both of those either quote or allude to Psalm 31.5. And you might be thinking, well, okay, so what? Well, take a look at, take a survey through some of the other translations of Psalm 31.5. Um, because what you'll find is that at least one translation, in particular the New English translation, reads a little bit, but significantly different. Into your hand, and NET translates it, I entrust my life. Now that's interesting. Why did the NET translate that life rather than spirit? Well, let's look at the first edition notes on Psalm 31.5, and here um, you can see what they're saying. The Hebrew is my spirit, and it says the noun ruach, or spirit, here refers to the animating spirit that gives the psalmist life. That's why the NET has chosen to translate this into your hand, I entrust my life. Now, that's not my preferred translation. But it is an attempt to illustrate that there are at least some solid biblical scholars who don't think that what the psalmist is here talking about is his immaterial spirit, but rather something more related to his life. Um, and indeed, this is a place where he's saying, I've taken shelter in you, deliver me, protect me, keep me safe, be my stronghold. In the context, he is saying, I entrust my life to you. Darren P. asks in the chat what is being sanctified, the person's mind. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. We'll talk about that in a future episode. So the question I want to try to answer for you is why might we think that the psalmist, and then by extension Jesus and Stephen, are talking about something other than a human immaterial spirit? Well, firstly, remember that Jesus and Stephen didn't speak in English, and Luke and, well, Luke, he's the author of both, uh, didn't write in English. So there's not even the English word spirit here, obviously. Well, the word spirit here, both in, in Luke 23 and in Acts 7, is the Greek noun pneuma. In, in English, when we have a P before an N, the P is silent, but in Greek you would say pneuma. And um, pneuma is, um, this is not what I meant to pull up, this is an expression, and, and the lexicon here is giving what they think the expression means, uh, but what I want to look at is the noun pneuma, all right? This is, the, this is the Greek noun from which we get words like pneumatic. Um, I'm sure there are others that for some reason don't occur to me right now, but think about what is it, what is, what is something that is pneumatic? P-N-E-U-M-A-T-I-C. Like pneumatic, um, like a pneumatic lift. What does a pneumatic machine, a pneumatic lift do? It uses compressed air to uh, move things. And that the reason why that comes from the Greek noun pneuma is because although pneuma is very often translated spirit, that's not necessarily its core meaning. Um, it actually has to do with air, air and motion in particular. Uh, so, for example, let me pull up the um, the Greek lexicon known as BDAG, Bauer Donker, uh, 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 Bauer Donker, Art, and Gingrich, I think. And notice the very first definition is air in movement, blowing, breathing. 
That's why the word pneumatic in English comes from the Greek noun pneuma, because pneuma refers to moving air. And by the way, you can, you can probably guess why this word would become associated with immaterial spirits like angelic beings or, or the, the, the activity of God himself, because you don't have a material substance you can see and um, feel or whatever, and yet you see its actions, right? So it's, it's like wind blowing. You don't see the wind, but you do see what it causes. Likewise, you don't see an immaterial spirit or God unless he, the, the spirit chooses to uh, reveal itself, but you can see its um, activity. You can, you can see its effects. So the word that we're dealing with here in Jesus's uh, request that the Father, uh, you know, take care of his spirit, and Stephen's request that Jesus receives his spirit, is the Father. It's Jesus and Stephen committing their panuma to God, and at least a very go-to definition of that would be of that panuma would be breath. Father, into your hands I commit my breath. And in the case of Stephen, Jesus, receive my breath. And if I'm right about this, that would be the case about Psalm 31.5 as well. Into your hand I commit my breath, my ruach. Oh, and by the way, that's also true of the Hebrew noun ruach. Um, what's the very first definition? Breeze or breath. Okay, so um, why then, it, let's say hypothetically speaking that I'm right, and the author is saying something like, into your hand, God, I commit my breath, and, and let's say that that's what Jesus, oh, and by the way, I should point out too that in Psalm, or in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, um, the noun is, uh, sorry, this, the, the, the translation of ruach, translated here spirit but i'm proposing that it be breath um the noun is pneuma so you can see right here ta pneuma mu my spirit okay so the septuagint translates ruach which is here translated spirit with pneuma but both the hebrew word and the greek word at their core communicate the idea of moving wind in particular many in very many cases breath or breathing so then why would the net choose to translate it my life and the answer there is because in hebraic old testament thought um there is a close relationship between or correlation between a person's life and his or her breath now, if you don't believe me, just go to Job 12.10. Um, I'll back up a little bit. I'm going to start with verse 7 in Job 12 and read this whole section here. Ask the beasts. Uh, this is, um, in case you're not familiar with the context here, this is Job answering one of his friends that are trying to uh, reason with him. <laughs> Remaining dove picture. I don't know what you're saying, Darren. I'm sorry. Um, so... Job 12, 7. But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of heavens, and they will tell you. Ask the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. Ask the fish of the sea, and they will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath 
of all mankind. You see, you see how in Job's Hebraic thinking, a living thing's life and a living thing's breath are closely related. Um, life here, by the word, by the way, is the Hebrew word nephesh, um, which does not really mean soul. It means life, although it arguably can be, you know, can refer to an immaterial soul. That if you're a dualist, um, but breath here is that word ruach that we looked at right here in Psalm thirty-one five. In your hand I commend my ruach. Well, and look what this text says. In God's hand is the ruach of everyone. So doesn't at least, and, and, and here you can see something of a textbook Hebrew parallelism. In Hebrew parallelism, um, which is not unique to Hebrew, but it is particularly characteristic of Hebrew, um, Hebrew authors, at least in, in ancient Hebrew, will say this very similar things, if not the same thing, in two different ways. And the parallelism between the two different ways of saying it help you to get an idea of what the one thing is that's being communicated. So the author, Job here, says that in God's hand is the life of every living thing, and in his hand is the breath of all humankind. So the life of everything and the breath of all mankind are almost saying the same thing in two parallel ways. So clearly in Job's Hebraic mind, a human's life and his or her breath are closely related. And specifically, Job is talking about how this is all in God's hand. Okay. And guess what the Septuagint reads um, in Job 12.10. The Septuagint, again, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, has zoe for life. This, this, if you can read Greek, this is zone tone, but that's because it's a um, participle. It's a particular form of the verb zao, which is just the verb equivalent of zoe. There's a myth in Christian thought that zoe is a special kind of love of, of life, but it's not. Just a particular. It just means life. It's it's one of several words for life. Um. So zoe, kai, pneuma. There's that word breath or wind again, translating the Hebrew ruach. And again, it's this close association between a human's life and his breath, that's, that life, that breath is in God's hand. So what's going on here? Well, let's dig in a little bit more. When we go back to Genesis 2, we see this in, in full full effect. We see it we see the very beginning of why in Hebraic thought a human's life and breath are so intimately uh connected. So there's there's such a close relationship. It's because God in, in Genesis 2:7 formed the man of dust from the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. This phrase, living creature, or living being, is used in the King James. It translated living soul in the King James and some other translations. But the reality is that this is the exact same Hebrew phrase used to describe beasts and birds and, you know, a variety, a variety of different creatures, not just humans. Um, living is the adjective chai, uh, 
chai, meaning living, um, and creature is the word nefesh. So a nefesh chaya, a living creature, is a... Um, well, I mean, that's what it is. It's a living creature. It's not a living soul. It's a living being, a living f physical creature. And um, nefesh, by the way, in case you're curious, uh, it's, it's etymology, its root has something to do with like the throat. So you can see that we're already talking about something that's close to the concept of breathing. But the point here is that when Adam becomes a living creature, a living being, is not when a body and a soul are brought together but rather when a body is breathed into and it starts breathing on its own and it's alive and you've got a living human being. That's, in my view, the biblical picture of the constitution of a human being. A body that is animated by the life-giving breath of God and is either breathing or is capable of breath or in the case of the unborn um, they are if allowed to continue developing normally they will they will have the capacity of breathing that's what i think a human that's why that this is why i count myself a physicalist is because the picture i see of humankind in scripture is the picture of a body of dust animated by the life-giving breath of god the body is inert inanimate inactive not breathing God breathes into it, the body stands up, and the body breathes on its own, and it's a living creature. Breath and life go hand in hand in Hebraic thought. Or at the very least, the capacity for breath, that, that uh, a capacity that will develop if an unborn child isn't murdered in its mother's womb. Now, the Septuagint, in case you're curious, does not have pneuma there for breath. The breath of life, but it's close. It has pnaein uh, uh, or pnae is the lexical form. Uh, notice that pn prefix. That's pn, pn from from pneuma from pneumatic. So you can see that there's a close relationship there. Uh, the point is though that breathing and living go hand in hand for a human being in Hebraic thought. And here's what's interesting. If you look, well, I think everything we've covered so far is interesting, but if you go look at Ecclesiastes, I think it's 12.7, we read the author, uh, I'm going to go back up to, um, let's say, well, I'll start with verse 6. Before the silver cord is snapped, this is a reference to death. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, right? These are all metaphors, expressions of death, euphemisms for death. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. Do you, do you, see, do you recognize that? Go back to Genesis 2-7. What did we see here? God formed a man of dust from the ground. And we see here Ecclesiastes talking about at death, the dust returning to the earth. And then we see that God breathed the breath of life into that body of dust. And likewise, we see, or do we likewise see breath returning to God? Well, not according to the ESV. The ESV has spirit here. But the word is ruach. That word that we said is, um, has to do with breathing and wind moving, air moving. And in fact, if we look at how other translations translate Ecclesiastes 12.7, what do we see? Well, here's the NRV. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the breath returns to God who gave it. 
And it's not just the new revised standard version. It's also the Lexham English Bible. This is done by Lexham Press. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the breath returns to God who gave it. The NET, also the New English translation. The dust returns to earth as it was, and the life's breath returns to God who gave it. And the um, the footnote here in the NET says uh, the likely referent is the life's breath that originates with God. See Genesis 2, 7 and others. So what do we see when we put these pieces together? Let me go through them one more time. We saw in uh, Psalm 31, 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. That's what's being quoted by Jesus and being alluded to by Stephen. And we saw that the word spirit in Greek is pneuma and in the Hebrew is ruach, both words having an intimate connection to the concept of moving air, breath. And then we looked at, what was it, Job 12, 7, uh, did I say? I've already forgotten what, what I had here. Job 12, um, in his hand. I had it up here a moment ago, sorry. Uh, Job... So, oh wait, what? I I must have passed it over. Okay, let me try it one more time. And I'll go with uh, breath. Is what I'll search for. Okay, well, in any way, oh here it is. Okay, Job twelve ten. I was so close when I did Job twelve Job twelve seven. So, number one, Jesus and Stephen are using a Greek word that means at its core moving air or breath which is a the cor a corresponding hebrew word ruach is used in the psalm that jesus is quoting and that stephen's alluding to which likewise has to do with moving air or breath we see that um job uh, reflecting you know very hebraic thinking can, says that the life of humankind and the breath of humankind are almost the same are, are almost two ways of referring to the same concept and that it's in the hand of god and then we see that this is uh, alluding, at least I think, back to Genesis 2-7, where God creates a body of dust and animates it with the life-giving breath of God. And then we saw in, and that was Genesis 2-7, and then we saw in Ecclesiastes 2-7 that in the, uh, the, the teacher, or Kohelet is a participle that is translated the teacher or the preacher or whatever. It's, it's the title of the character who is you know, presented as the author of this book. He says the dust at death returns to the earth as it was, and the life's breath returns to God who gave it. And by the way, one really good reason for thinking that this doesn't, in fact, have to do with an immaterial human spirit is because... Um, people, human beings, when they are, when Adam was created, there was no immaterial soul given to Adam. Even if dualism is true, God created an immaterial soul in Adam. Otherwise, you've got people pre-existing their, their, their conception. And now you're dealing with Mormonism. <laughs> um, the point is, this—the only concept in Scripture of something that could be that could be returned to God, who gave it in the first place when a person dies, would be his breath, his life breath. And the picture of um, of the breath returning to God who gave it, and a person entrusting that into the hand of God at his or her death is a picture of trusting, and get this, 
that one day God will give it back. It's a trust. It's an expression of faith and trust and confidence in God who gave me my breath in the first place. And as I die, I entrust my breath back to God, knowing that he will one day give it back to me in resurrection. I will come back to life and I will never lose my breath again. I'll never die again. That is what I think is going on when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in Acts 7, when Stephen says, uh, into your hands, Jesus, or sorry, he says to Jesus, uh, uh, <laughs> Jesus, receive my spirit. Receive my pneuma. Into your hands I commit my pneuma, my breath, my life's breath, trusting that you're going to give it back. That's what I think is going on with this language of uh, commit my spirit. Now, you may not be convinced, and that's fine. But I am certain that you will come up with no better case for your dualistic reading of these texts. Um, if we look at the Old Testament background to the language these authors are using, you will find no justification for thinking they're talking about their immaterial souls or spirits returning to God. What you will find, as I've just shown you, is the concept of God's life-giving breath returning to him when a person dies. And, and us trusting in that life-giver, that breath-giver, we're trusting that he'll give it back when we're raised from the dead. I think that's beautiful. In fact, I would argue it's a more beautiful, not only is it more accurate, given its Old Testament background, but it's a more beautiful, more compelling reading because it is no longer simply an affirmation of trust that I will go immediately to God, which is great, fine. But if I'm right, it's more than that. It's a trust that I'm going to get my life back one day. I'm going to be raised from the dead one day. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's compelling, more beautiful and compelling than a dualistic reading. And as I think I've demonstrated, it is a more exegetically sound reading. Now, let me be clear. As low-hanging fruit, these texts, if I'm, if I'm right about them, they don't necessarily challenge dualism and they don't establish physicalism. But what they do is show that when you come upon a text which in a translation uses a word like soul or spirit, you can't just assume that all of the 2,000 years worth of Western civilization baggage that we have inherited in the English words spirit and soul, we can't assume that all of that baggage was there when the biblical authors used the words. We have to do the hard work of exegesis to find out if perhaps they had something different in mind. And I'll also add that if I'm right about these texts, dualism could still be true, and it would just mean that these texts don't have anything to do with dualism, which, is, which would still be fine. And I would encourage you dualists watching to accept the reading I've just offered of Jesus' and Stephen's words because of how much more biblically accurate it is and because of how much more compelling and beautiful it is. And you could still hold on to your dualism. But the point I want to get, the, the point I've tried to make is that a physicalist, when he looks at these texts, he's not trying to find some way to um, twist it and distort it to be consistent with their physicalism. I mean, some might be doing that. But in my case, I'm just trying to follow the biblical evidence where it leads. 
I'm refusing to allow all the baggage that I have inherited that goes along with the words soul and spirit. I'm trying to avoid reading that in, eisegeting that in, to the biblical text. And when I carefully apply standard rules of, you know, the grammatical historical exegesis, what you find, at least in these texts, is that, the ba is that this isn't at all an affirmation of dualism or a reflection of dualism. It's a reflection of, or it's an affirmation of trust that God, who gave me my life's breath to begin with, will one day give it back. All right, before right, I'm going to take eight more minutes to field one or two questions uh, in the chat. And what I want to begin with um, is Darren's question. In 2 Corinthians 5, what is longing to be further clothed? Our minds, in your view? That's, the, that's Darren's question. So what he's talking about here is... Um, uh, Right here, Paul says in first in Second Corinthians five. While we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, specifically with immortality, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And Darren's question is: Well, if dualism isn't true, if I'm right, and physicalism is true, what is what does Paul hope won't be unclothed, but will instead be clothed all the more? Um, a typical dualistic reading of this is going to say that that's the soul. The soul, which is currently clothed by this earthly home, this earthly tent, will one day be, instead of being found naked, be clothed even further with an immortal material body. And yeah, that seems like a, a, a plausible reading of this text. I want to propose, however, and this is something I'll have to get into more detail in a future episode. Remember, this is really just an introduction, but I'm glad that in the last few minutes I've got, I can... Um, briefly introduce how a physicalist might approach some of these other, other texts. What I would propose here is that the tent language isn't intended to be taken literally, as if there's something actually indwelling a tent that is our body. I think it's just metaphor, and the contrast is between the frail earthly our frail earthly body and our future perfect and strong and glorious and immortal resurrected body. I think that's clearly, in fact, what is going on in the context. Because we see here um, Paul saying that um, we who live are always being given over to death so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, this could be just saying we want the life of Jesus to be seen in our current mortal flesh now, but it seems like it's a bit of a hint at resurrection as well. And in fact, we go on to read that since we have the same spirit of faith according to which we have written blah, 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 we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So he's talking about um, his confident hope that one day he'll rise from the dead. And because of that confident hope of resurrection, we don't lose heart. Because although our outer self is wasting, wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This inner self, I think, is, is a reference to our mind, our character, our... Our, um, our mind, our character, our proclivities, all of our personality. Um... And he says, because this light momentary affliction, the affliction of being persecuted in body, in this mortal body, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And I don't think that what he's talking about is some sort of glory we experience immediately when we die. That would be out of context, right? He's talking about his hope in resurrection. That's the eternal glory he's looking forward to. So coming to 2 Corinthians 5, continuing with that 
way of thinking. He says, right now we have a tent that is our earthly home, and when it's destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That house is not heaven. It's our resurrected body. And the reason I think that's the case is not only the context that we've looked at, but he, go, he also goes on to say, our hope is not to be found um, naked or unclothed, but rather further clothed. What we look forward to is the day when we will be clothed even more gloriously than we are now, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And then he goes on, this is, this is the famous text where Paul says, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, because right now we are at home in the body and away from the Lord. And, the, and a dualist reads this and thinks, see, look, if we're, if we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. And then when we're away from the body, we're at home with the Lord. Well, if that's what, if what, if that's what Paul means, then to be in the resurrection body would be to be away from the Lord too, wouldn't it? But obviously that's wrong. We will be, when we are resurrected, we will be more at home in the presence of the Lord than even than ever before, even if there is a conscious intermediate state. So what Paul is saying is, I think, given the context we've looked at so far, to be at home in this body is to be away from the Lord. And to be away from this body in our resurrected immortal body is to be at home with the Lord. That's my reading. I don't think tent, the tent and dwelling language is intended literally as if there's a soul indwelling the body. I just think it's a metaphor contrasting a frail and easily broken tent with a magnificent, powerful, strong structure made by God himself. And that's our resurrection body. Um, there are another question. What do you... Okay, this is the only other question I think I'm going to have time to field in this episode since I'm going to go in two minutes. Jimmy Gray says, What do you believe Jesus is referring to when he uses the word soul in Matthew 10, 28? Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who could destroy both soul and body in hell. Now remember, what did we say earlier? That Jesus didn't speak English and Luke or Matthew in this case didn't write in English. So what is soul? The word soul here is psuche. It's where we get the word psychology, um, psychosomatic, etc. Psyche. In fact, that's all psyche is. It's a transliteration of the Greek words psuche. But look at what happens if we look up the word psuche in a lexicon. Um, this is just one definition of psuche. I'm going to open it up in, in BDAG, though, to show you that the Greek word psuche... You know what its primary definition is? Here's psuche. Here's its very first definition. Life on earth in its animating aspect, making bodily function possible. Life. So what I think is, now, and, and, and this is in fact how it is very often used in the New Testament. If I do a quick search here and I limit uses of psuche to the book of Matthew, look what we find in uh, the last time it was used. Um, what did I do? Matthew uh, 6.25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Is not life more than food? Matthew 2.20. Those who sought the child's psuche, his life, are dead. So leading up to Matthew 10.28, psuche means life. And guess what it means outside or beyond Matthew 10.28? Verses 39, whoever finds his life, his psuche, will lose it. And whoever loses his psuche for my sake will find it. 
So I think that what Jesus is saying here is not, don't fear man who can kill the body but cannot kill the immaterial soul, rather fear him who could destroy both immaterial soul and body in hell. I think what he's saying is, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot ultimately take your life. Rather fear him who can both destroy your body and ultimately destroy your life. Because when men kill you, they haven't ultimately taken your life away because God's going to raise you back from the dead one day. But in hell, if God destroys both your body and ultimately destroys your life, you will never live again. That's what I think is going on in Matthew 10, 28. I can't say more right now um, because it's 7.30, it's been an hour and a half, and I want to wrap it up. So I hope that this has been a helpful introduction. I know that I've probably left tons and tons of questions unanswered that you'd like me to answer, and I will get to those in future episodes. I'm not passionate about physicalism, but I do think it's interesting and I do think it's defensible. And I want to cover it in future episodes. But all I wanted to do in this episode was give you a very brief... <laughs> I'm reading my theology back into the Bible. Okay. I mean, I've, I've tried to show you what, why... I've tried to show you that, what I, that my theology is what I'm getting from the Bible. All you've done is assert that I'm reading it into the Bible, but merely asserting that. You, you don't have to delete his messages, Susan. He's, he's, I think a day is, is wrong. He's, he's clearly wrong when he says I'm reading my theology into the Bible because I've just shown you how I get it from the Bible. But he didn't say anything offensive or insulting. Um, so you don't, Susan, you don't have to, to, to delete his comments anymore. But anyway, my point is, hopefully this has been a helpful introduction to Christian physicalism. Um, and, and give you an example of low-hanging fruit, to be sure, but an example of texts that might, at, the, uh, at first glance, seem like they're teaching dualism or supporting dualism. But when examined a little bit more closely, um, a very good case can be made that they actually say something different that is consistent with physicalism. In future episodes, we'll get into other problematic texts, challenging texts. We'll explore the various forms of dualisms and physicalisms and monisms, all in future episodes of the show. But hopefully this has been a helpful introduction um, to hold you over for now. It was something I was able to prepare for quickly and deliver relatively quickly. Um, and that's what I was hoping for. Thank you for those of you who have uh, been watching live. There have been at least 10 to 15 of you. That's awesome. I really am grateful for that. And for any of you who are watching after this has been archived to my channel, thank you. Please, again, do consider liking this video if you enjoyed it. Um, subscribe to the channel and click that notifications bell so that my channel gets more exposure. And um, check out the Facebook event page for the debate. I put the link in the live chat toward the beginning of the show. Um, if you can be in Landrum, South Carolina, not this coming Saturday, but the one after, Saturday, March 20th, uh, then you can come attend my live and in-person debate. In the meantime, come back two weeks from today. I guess that wouldn't be in the meantime. It would be after that. Either way, whether you can make that debate or not, come back in two weeks' time, Monday, March 22nd, at the usual time, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, same channel, <laughs> I was going to say same bat channel, uh, youtube.com slash theapologetics for the next episode of The Apologetics. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. 
Until then. <laughs> <laughs>